Grace Fellowship, this morning I want us to revel in the good news of the Holy Spirit. I want us to read this text together. Acts 18, 24 through 19, 10. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling that people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray together. Father... As we read your text that you have given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would send in a special and unique way your Spirit, that the Word might go forth in power. That you would take a poor, lisping, stammering tongue and speak the words of life to your people so that they will believe and be sanctified and saved and encouraged and empowered and prepared for the life that sits before them this very week. Lord, you know there are so many here who are hurting in so many ways. Father, I pray right now for those brothers and sisters whose marriages are shattered. Families are hurting. 
I ask God that you would be merciful and that you would grant sustaining power through your spirit. Work a miracle in our homes, God, for your glory. Save our children for your glory. Heal the sick in, for your glory. Call the saved to do your work for your glory. Send us to the ends of the earth for your glory. And do it all by the power of the Spirit that no one may boast. Except in the name of your exalted Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We need to hear and believe and live in light of the reality of this news. It is good news to receive the promised Holy Spirit. He regenerates our soul. He seals us unto the day of redemption. Witnesses within our spirit that Christ is the greatest treasure. Teaches us the very word of God. Convicts us of our sins. Shows us the areas of our life where unbelief still exists. The Holy Spirit counsels us. He comforts us perseveres us and springs up within us the living water that satisfies the deepest depths of our souls and hearts desire. He utters the prayers that we don't even know how to pray. The Holy Spirit is undeniably and inseparably the promise of the Father for all who believe in the Son. Do you truly believe all of this that is true about the Spirit and what He's doing in your life? Maybe I could ask it this way. Can you imagine living your life without the presence of the Holy Spirit? Let's look at our text and, and see this good news together. Christ Fellowship, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Without him, we have incomplete knowledge. And that's what we see in our text. Apollos is from one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Alexandria, Egypt is world-renowned at this time for its library, which contains more books than any other library in its day. This was the home of Philo, the greatest of the Jewish philosophers. Alexandria is also where the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek, which is the Septuagint, which is the most used scriptural text in the first century. So it's no shock when Apollos shows up in the city of Ephesus, an eloquent, educated man, understanding the Old Testament. Fully instructed in the way of Yahweh. This man was not only a scholar of the Old Testament, but he was passionate and gifted in preaching. But notice that he's not only up on all things Old Covenant, he also accurately taught his fellow Jews things concerning Jesus. You see that in the text. 
This is an interesting way for Luke to record the way Apollos presented the word. He did not stop teaching in the pre-Christ era, but continued in teaching the things of Jesus. Yet, he's only received the baptism of John. Apollos believed in God by faith. We know that faith is a gift from God through the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He accepted the fulfillment of the old covenant in the person of Jesus. But his knowledge is incomplete. While he is teaching in Ephesus, Luke tells us in verse 26 that Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them from last week. They're the ones that Paul found in Corinth and worked alongside daily in the tent making business. And they, they came with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus and then he left them there and he returned to Jerusalem Priscilla and Aquila heard this man and realized that he had gaps in his understanding and in his theology, in his teaching. They lovingly and graciously pulled him aside. I mean, Derek Thomas is so bold to say they probably invited Apollos to eat dinner with them. That's not what the text says, but you can almost see that, can't you? These older Christians pulling aside Apollos, their brother, and saying, eat dinner with us. Let's talk more about the truth together. Let's reason together. There's some things you're yet to understand and know. So Apollos comes aside, and they disciple him on what he still didn't know. Priscilla and Aquila are skillful, gracious believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They do not embarrass this young preacher. They don't rebuke him publicly. These are things we need to pay attention to. Because some people have said that Apollos was a false teacher because he wasn't teaching the fullness of the new covenant. But see, I disagree completely. The text shows that he needed training. He needed more more of what the completion of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ would look like in his life. So these older believers tactfully teach him so that he's encouraged and not destroyed. We can learn a great lesson, Grace Fellowship, from Priscilla and Aquila. And how gently and lovingly they helped Apollos in his faith and in his need to be a better teacher. But it makes me ask a question looking at the text. What is it that Apollos was doing or what was it that he lacked? How did they know that he lacked understanding of the fullness of the new covenant? I think the clue is in verse 25. If you look there in the text, it says that he was fervent in, I understand this to be his spirit, passion. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. You notice here. He knew only the baptism of John the Baptist. He knew the last prophet of the Old Covenant. John the Baptist came declaring that the kingdom of God was near. And he called everyone who he preached to, the Jews specifically, to come and repent and believe in the coming Messiah. When people believe, John baptized them with water for repentance. As an example, outwardly, of what the repentance looked like inwardly. They were washing themselves, cleansing themselves of all of their sin. 
This baptism of John was not Christian baptism. We see that in the text, Matthew 3. You don't have to turn there, Matthew 3, 11. This is what John the Baptist says about his baptism. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Listen to this. He's speaking about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John didn't understand his baptism to be Christian. It was Old Covenant. It was repentance. It was ceremonial. It was an outward picture of what was happening when they confessed their sins. It's the prayer of Psalm 51. Cleanse me, O God, of my unrighteousness. They're exemplifying it outwardly, obediently. Apollos believed in all the revelation of God that he had received. He believed in the promises of the Old Covenant. He believed in John the Baptist. He believed when John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. These are the things he's teaching about Jesus. And he's accepted all that God has revealed to him, and he's accepted it by faith. But until this day, when Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside, he doesn't understand and doesn't know and isn't looking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know that yet. And you say, how did they know that Apollos had gaps in his teaching? How did they know he didn't know? Ultimately, in this paragraph, we're not told how they exactly identified his shortcoming in his understanding of the new covenant. We don't know fully, but... Using some context clues, I think we can see at least some of the reasons why they saw that he was lacking. Priscilla and Aquila had been in Rome where they came to know the truth in the Jewish community there. And they were sent out by Caligula, the emperor, whenever the teaching of Christ began to stir up problems within the Jewish community. Basically, the emperor said, leave. And so all the Jews had to leave the city. They left, and they went to Corinth. That's what we found out last week. And when they're in Corinth, they meet Paul. Paul comes to them and begins to work. He spends day and night there, making tents, helping them in their business, speaking in the public square, reasoning in the synagogues. And also, they've been seeing him preach for 18 months. They've watched Paul preach. And this couple experienced firsthand what it looked like to hear a man filled with the Holy Spirit preach the Word of God. They saw it. Not only did they see it firsthand, but they experienced it firsthand. Because as, John, as Paul preached, their, their spirit and the Spirit of God within them bears witness to the truth. And so they've experienced what it looks like. They've seen it in Paul. They've felt it in their own hearts. And they've seen it how it opened their eyes. Can you imagine making tents with Paul for 10 or 12 hours a day? And then hearing him lecture and preach and persuade others to believe? These people have been front row to this for a long time. They know firsthand what it looks like to hear a new covenant preacher preach the good news. And this is why I think when they got to Apollos in Ephesus, they spotted immediately that he knows so much. He is so accurate. He understands the scriptures. He believes. He's passionate. He's giving his life to it. But there's still some things he obviously doesn't know yet. And so they pull him aside. He needed knowledge on fire. 
Look what happens once he fully grasps and trusts in the fullness of the new covenant. After they tell him and explain to him the way of God more accurately, in verse 27, he had a desire to go to Corinth. Side note, whenever you truly know the Spirit and His power, you have a desire to take the word of Jesus Christ to the lost world. He was accurate in all of his understanding. He was the most reasonable person in Ephesus, most likely. He was, the, he was a respected teacher within the synagogue. All of that by faith. He is a believer. He's not a lost guy. He's a believer, church. And when he understands the Spirit and the Spirit comes on him, it's knowledge on fire. He wants to go to the lost world. He wants to go where the gospel needs to be preached. He goes to Corinth, where Paul's already been. And in verse 28, it says he powerfully, note that word in your text, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the scriptures that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. Once he knew the Holy Spirit, his preaching was next level. It became next level. He was not only eloquent, educated, skillful, passionate, but he was what? Powerful. The Holy Spirit brings power into our lives. Grace Fellowship, we need to believe that the only power that we possess is the power given to us by the good news of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We receive the gospel by faith through the Holy Spirit. So is it any doubt that our life after coming to the gospel is empowered by the same Spirit? But you might say, okay, all of this is great, Carlton. I I hear what you're saying. You're obviously excited about Apollos. But what does all that have to do with me? I'm so glad you asked We would have a really short sermon if you didn't. So let me take a few minutes just to drill into the depth of this. What does it mean for us to have the Holy Spirit? God was for and with his people in the old covenant. He was for and with them. Adam and Eve are made into the garden. God was for them. You know how we know he was for them? He created the garden so that they would have a dwelling place. He provided a place for them to live. He, repl- he gave them one another for human relationship. He gave them all that was needed to thrive, excel, expand in this new creation that he's made. He said it is very good. God was for them. God was for them. And God wasn't just for them, church. He was with them. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, when they sin. We always get focused on their hiding. But what does it say? It says that God showed up in the cool of the day to walk with them. God was with them in the garden. He was for them and he was with them. We fast forward to Moses at the, at the mount with Israel and God is for Israel. How do we know God is for Israel? Well, he took one man, Abraham, and his barren wife, Sarah, and he made out of him a great nation. They entered into a handful of people into Egypt 
Uh, and they, they, they left there about 635,000 men. God had multiplied them. He was for them. Not only did they leave Egypt, they left unscathed and wealthy. They came in with the clothes on their back and they left with the powerful nation on its knees before God after the ten, uh, ten plagues. And they received the gold and silver and precious jewels of the richest nation on the earth. God was for his people. He took them out and didn't take them by the way of the Amalekites, but by the Red Sea. And he parted the sea for them. They crossed on dry land and he crushed the most mighty army in the world. Do you not see that God is for his people in Israel? He takes them to Mount Sinai and he brings up his mediator Moses and he gives to him the word on stone the covenant church God was for his people and God was with them God was with them he didn't just say leave Egypt and go make your way he went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night He guarded their way. He did not allow the enemies that they had in the land to attack them prematurely. He protected them. He watched over them. And they cried out to him and belly ached about their condition. And God gave them bread out of heaven. And they complained and they wa- about the water that they didn't have. And he gave them water from a rock. And he, they complained because the most precious and sweet bread, we're told, that every Miss Ann Sprayberry makes the best sourdough bread this side of the Mississippi and maybe farther. I don't know. We had some last night. If you missed men's time together, that's your fault. Uh, we had them the best steaks you ever put in your mouth and some of the best bread. But listen, her bread's nothing compared to the manna that came down from heaven. And what did God's people do? They whined and complained. They were so tired of eating bread. And what did God do? He gave them quail. They just fell down out of there, onto the ground, dead. My granddaddy used to say plucked, roasted with bacon around them. The text doesn't say that, but that's, you know, that's the country way we eat quail. I don't know how they ate them back then. God was for his people, and God was with his people. Well, there's another way we know he was for them and with them is because they had a tabernacle, and God constructed that tabernacle, and they camped all around it, and God's very spirit came down into the Holy of Holies. He was with his people, and later the temple, he was with his people. Can you imagine what it was like to stand and watch as the powerful spirit of God came down into that place? God was for them, and he was with them. And then after the Old Covenant... In the intermediate period between the Old and New Covenant, Jesus Christ, His Son, came. And Jesus Christ was the tabernacle of God's Holy Spirit while He dwelled in the flesh on the earth. John 1 verse 14 said, The Word became flesh and pitched His tent. Tabernacle. That's not some frivolous word. The Spirit chose that word because that word had meaning in Israel and it has meaning to us, does it not? The tabernacle of the Old Covenant is replaced by Jesus. It's accentuated by Jesus. He's the true tabernacle. Come down from heaven. In John 2, 18 through 22, he's walking in the temple courts. He goes out and he says, tear this temple down. In three days, I'll raise it up again. They say, 
46 years our fathers have built this temple and you'll build it in three days. But after he died and was resurrected, they knew that he spoke about his own body as the temple. Jesus is the greater temple, church. And why is he that? Because he is God in the flesh, right? But have you ever not looked at the text where the baptism happens in the Jordan by the hands of John? And what does it say? But the Spirit descends on him like a dove from heaven. It's the filling that the tabernacle had and the temple had. Now it's Jesus himself. And so when he walked on the earth, are we not to see that he drew the people to himself to worship his Father? He created great miracles. He defeated demons. He healed the sick. He preached the word. He gave them bread when they had no bread and fish to go along with it. Jesus Christ embodied the Spirit of God in a very unique way as long as he was here. He was the grace and truth of God, the bread of life, the burning lamp. But when Jesus comes to the end of his life, he says, It is better for you, my people, if I go away to my Father, because I will send you my Spirit. John 14 through 16, he spends the whole end of his ministry teaching them about this Spirit that's coming. Aaron talked about it a little bit in the service already. The Spirit will come. The Helper will come. If I go away, then he comes. And it's better for you. Church, it's better for us that Jesus is in heaven and the Spirit has come. How many times have you said, oh, if Jesus was just here? Because when Jesus was on the earth, God, the Spirit was for them and with them. But church, now God is for us, he's with us, he's in us. We live in the greatest time. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 1. What agreement has the temple of the living God with idols? For we have the temple, we are, we are the temple of the living God. And God said, Listen to what God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from the midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, Paul says, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He uses temple cleansing language because we are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. God is now for us, with us, and in us. Grace Fellowship, we have the awesome privilege of living in the new covenant where God is not external to us in a pillar of cloud by day or fire by night. He is not coming down into the holy of holies of a tabernacle or a temple. He's not even contained into the precious body of his precious and glorious son our savior but instead he chooses to live within us each one of us Jesus Christ has poured out his spirit on us so that each of us is now able to live by the power of the living God 
And this transforms everything about the way we now live our new life in Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul also calls Him the Spirit of Christ living in us who makes our conscience alive. We now have the law written not on stone but in our hearts and made alive by the Holy Spirit so that we know right from wrong. You may try to tell yourself you didn't know it was sin, but if you have the Spirit of God in you, He begs to differ with you. Because you're His temple, when you go to sin, He says, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. We not only have a living conscience, but we have a written word. This word, the Word of God that is equal to the very name of God when it comes to authority. But the Word, the Word is made living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword by the Holy Spirit. It's entirely possible for a person to come to the Bible and approach it as if it's a history book or a book of moral stories or to study it so we have answers and knowledge which puffs up. It's possible. But that's not how we are called to approach God's Word. Because we have the Spirit of Christ within us, we approach the Bible as the living and active very Word of God. We approach the Word of God as the mind of Christ, which can only be interpreted and understood by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, And I, when I came to you, brother, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with holy speech or wisdom, lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor The heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is within him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. But he but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. We approach the Bible as the transforming word of God because our minds have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of our mind happens because the Spirit of God does the work of renewal, causing us to fully grasp the power of the Word of God. Grace Fellowship, I'm straining to help us understand that we are sometimes like Apollos in the way we live and know the Bible. It should never be this way. Apollos lived in the overlap of the old and new epoch in God's redemptive history. We live in the overlap of the new and eternal epoch in God's plan. So... We all should live with the fullness of the Spirit. In other words, it was not a sin for Apollos to know only what God had given him, but when God gave him more, he believed and he accepted it by faith. And it's demonstrated by the power of his preaching in Corinth. But it is a sin for us to live as if the Spirit of God does not live in us. And it's a sin to approach the Bible as if it's a mere book. So I can look smarter than somebody else. These are the words of the living God. And in us is the spirit of the living God. And we should take up this word with spiritual eyes and ears to hear and see. And minds renewed by the spirit of God to understand the mind of Christ. And obey Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He tells us to be filled with the Spirit in our daily lives. He tells us to put sin to death by the Spirit or our sin will put us to death. If we don't stop living like there's only an ethereal concept of the Spirit and start living like people who are the temple of God and dwelt by the Spirit, then we aren't going to have the deep joy, overcoming of sin, power in life and ministry, or a legacy to the glory of God. You people over 60 worried about leaving a legacy. The Spirit's the only way you will have a godly legacy. And we got to live as if it's the only way. And all of us young men sitting in here dilly-dallying with our sin need to understand we are the temple of the living God. And He has commanded us to be cleansed of our sin and draw near to Him. And all of you babies and young underage children, listen to me. Don't believe the spirit of this age which is death but believe the spirit of God when your parents teach you and train you and when you hear the word of God you understand it is the living God of word of God it is the living word of God I want to press a little more our preaching and witness is only knowledge on fire when we actively present our mind our heart our body our soul to the spirit of God every day Every day, that's what Romans 6 calls us to. Listen, we can't treat the the Trinity in our comfortable. We can't recreate the Trinity in our comfortable image. Some of us seek comfort so much we don't even recognize it. It's not okay to live as if the Trinity is God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We do not worship the Bible. We do not worship the Bible. The Bible is God's Word, but it cannot replace God's Spirit. It was never intended to do that. The Spirit is God living in us to make His Word living and active so that we're transformed in our daily living to the glory of God the Father, so no man may boast. This is what it means to have complete and not incomplete knowledge. Knowledge on fire and not knowledge that puffs up with pride. Now look with me in the next paragraph in 19, 1 through 7. Paul shows up in Ephesus through the northern land route. He comes in and he finds some disciples. Luke doesn't, I just call you to attention to this. Luke gives no modifiers. They're disciples. He uses that in his gospel and in Acts for those who are following Christ. Luke uses that phrase to say, I think that these are believers in Ephesus, but we see quickly that they have the same issue, maybe even a deeper lack of knowledge as Apollos. Verse 2 says, And Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that's hard, that's hard, but one thing to think about is the Jews understood there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but, but they did not know the ministry of the Spirit the way we do. So it could be that they're not saying, we didn't even know the Spirit existed, but we didn't know the Spirit was an option to live in us, same as Apollos. It could be that. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And then Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So here are these believers who, much like the old covenant believers, have only repented of their sin and they've been obedience to God by the power that's been given to them. They have been baptized into the baptism of repentance, but they have not yet understood the fullness of the new covenant. They also respond in obedience once they, once they receive the full truth. The text says they were immediately baptized with water into the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the only time that I think we see in Acts where believers of the old covenant are re, that have been baptized with John's baptism are rebaptized into the new covenant. But I think there's a reason that that's the case. This is to clearly show the transition between old covenant and new covenant. We needed to see that they're coming from an old covenant view to a new covenant view. And so they're baptized for their own sake, for our sake. And he lays his hands on them and they receive the, the Spirit fully with power and signs. Once they're baptized and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Why? Well, this is the fourth time in the gospel, I mean in the Acts, that we see this. Remember, Jesus told them in Acts 1-5 that the Spirit would come on them. The apostles waited in Jerusalem. They received the Spirit. They go to Pentecost. and the Pentecost, the Spirit falls on them. 3,000 are saved, and they do signs and wonders. Second, it happens at Samaria. Whenever Samaria receives the gospel through Philip's ministry, Peter and John go down in Acts 8, and they receive the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit in the same way, a powerful way. The third time it happens is Acts 10, 44-48, when Peter... When Peter is preaching to Cornelius and the Gentiles in his household. And finally it happens in our text 
What we have here is a transitional event that happened not as a universal prescription, but as a witness to how God expanded his dwelling within believers from the apostles to the Jews on Pentecost to Samaria to the Gentile God fears and even into Turkey, Asia Minor, which is where we are in Ephesus. As Jesus said in Acts 1 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is why Paul in Colossians says, I have preached the gospel to the whole world. The Spirit has come not just for the apostles, not just for the Jews, not just for the half-breed Jews, but for us Gentiles too. God is dwelling in us. <laughs> now we have seen what it looks like for Apollos to have incomplete knowledge and then receive knowledge on fire by the Holy Spirit. But what does it look like to reject knowledge? Well, to reject knowledge is to reject God. We see this sad reality in verses 8 through 10 in our text. Paul labored in preaching in the synagogue for three months. He boldly spoke, reasoned with them, trying to persuade them to believe that the, tr the truth of the kingdom of God. But look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them. Unbelief is the natural condition of every man and woman without the work of God through the Holy Spirit to soften the heart and give new life. These aren't exceptions. These are the rule. Stubbornness is the result of a hardened heart against the truth of the gospel. Mocking and speaking evil of Christ and Christianity is a sign of full rejection of the power of God unto salvation, a rejection of the Spirit of God and the Son of God. So Paul left these hardened, unbelieving, blasphemous people so that he could continue ministry with those who would hear and believe at the school of Tyrannus. He stayed there for two years and God blessed him in such a way that all of Asia heard the truth of the gospel. If you reject the work of Christ by rejecting the spirit-empowered word of Christ, then you have no hope. That's what this text says. I'm pleading with you not to do this today. But rather, if you're here and you're without Christ, then I call you to place your full faith and trust into Jesus. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. If the Spirit of God is working within you right now to believe in Christ, then I want you to submit to his lordship right where you are. And when this service is over, I want you to grab a pastor and tell them, I, I believed in Christ for the first time this morning. And I need to be taught and trained. I need help to walk this walk. Or grab somebody else that you know that loves you and maybe brought you here. And tell them, the Spirit worked in me this morning. And saved me. That's, we want to know. Not so we can do something for ourselves. But so we can serve you by discipling you and helping you grow. So if you don't have the Spirit of God, I'm calling you. If He's calling you. Respond by submission. Do not reject him. If you're here and you know Christ, but you've been living as if you are not filled with the Spirit of God, then I call you to repent of that sin. And I call on you to ask God for the fullness of his Spirit. Ask him to fill you and to give you power to walk by the Spirit so that you will not gratify the flesh some of us have lived in this sin for so long, we don't know what it's like to have God's power in our life. 
And it's no mistake that we now look a lot like the lost world around us. But there's hope this morning. You don't have to leave that way. So I'm calling you to beg God to give you the Spirit. Luke 11, Jesus said that we are to ask God and he will give us his Spirit. So by the word of Jesus, I tell you, ask God for more of his Spirit. We can leave this morning knowing the Spirit of God is for us, with us, and yes, thank you. He's in us. <laughs> so I'm asking our music team to come on forward and lead us in singing the same song we sang earlier, King of Kings. And as they're coming, I want to ask our pastors to go stand at the exits of the room and to be prepared to receive testimonies of people who've come to know Christ as their Savior. They've come to submit newly to the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. So, so while they're singing, I'm asking you to be contemplating, and I want you to join in in singing, but I want you to really contemplate what's been said here this morning, and I want you to call on God to change you. I'm opening this altar to you. If you're here today and you just want to pray, and you say, I need to pray, I'm asking you to come forward and pray that God would transform your life and renew your mind. And I'm asking you to sing, church. I'm asking you to confess your sin. I'm asking you to call on God to save you. I'm calling on God to enliven you with His Spirit. But do not leave hardened this morning. Do not leave blaspheming the Spirit. Leave changed by His power. Let's sing together, church. Let's sing. Let's all stand and sing together.